0: I think we teach what we really need to learn.
1: So welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we're going to be talking about assumptions with two very special guests, Liz Goffberg and Shalise McKnight. Uh, now, what do we even mean by assumptions and how does that pertain to our teaching and learning practices? So to start, I'm going to introduce them and then they're going to start with a couple of little stories that might illustrate exactly this topic. So first of all, Liz Goughberg, uh is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Many of you in the Harvard Macy community would know her because she's been uh, teaching with the program for many years. She's the Director of Professional and Academic Development at the Cambridge Health Alliance and a Senior Consultant to the Association of American Medical Colleges, FRAME, which is the Fundamental Role of the Arts and Humanities in Medical Education Initiative. As you know, she leads the uh, Art Museum, our Health Professions Education Fellowship, which is also part of the Harvard Macy Program. Um, but she wanted to also say that she lives on the most beautiful lake in the world. There might be some contention about that, Liz, uh, up in New Hampshire, uh, with her friends the Loons and Bears. How are you, Liz?
0: I'm well. Thank you for having me on, Vic. You are one of my favorite and most inspirational people at HMI.
1: All right. Well, we better keep recording then if we're say <laughs> nice things like that. <laughs> Now, someone I don't know as well, but I'm looking forward to spending some time with uh, today is Shalise McKnight. Uh, she's a board-certified psychiatrist, sub-specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry. She practices at Fort Belvoir, I think I've said that appropriately, community hospital in Northern Virginia, uh, where she supports military dependents through a uniquely embedded school-based collaborative behavioral health program. Sounds very interesting, uh, and she's co lead for their hospital diversity, equity, and inclusion task force. But most relevant to her uh, conversation here today, she has very recently been a scholar at the Harvard Macy Institute, and I think that was how we managed to uh, invite her to be with us today. And I'm just going to read something else from her bio, which I like. Uh, she thrives upon social connection and yearns to leave the world in a better state than she found it. Welcome, Shalise.
2: Thank you. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent.
1: All right, well, I thought we might start with you, Shalise, because uh, it sounds very um esoteric this concept of assumptions but uh, I was hoping that you might both tell us a story that maybe gives us some sense about what we mean by this and Chalice, maybe you could uh, maybe you could start
2: I would love to so I I'm sharing a story about how my assumptions came into play more so from my childhood. And um, I think it's going to be relevant just to open up perspective, just even from a cultural standpoint. So I was raised by a mother. She was raised by blue-collar workers. And it was during the time of just intense political climate during wartime and then civil rights movement. So I think she had a very unique perspective of what it took to be a learner. And when she was imparting to me, she would guide me in a place where, okay, these are the things that you need to do to kind of overcome the assumptions that people had of people of color, but then also just to help me as I was navigating my own educational experience. So some of those things maybe get to class early, go the extra mile, sit up straight, just some of those things that I felt like I had to do. And I feel that over time, those assumptions really impacted how I showed up in a learning environment. I was the only person of color in my medical school class of over 200 people. And even though these narratives I've tried to combat, they've stayed with me because at one point I know we talk about assumptions being something that doesn't really have proof, but at some point, that was a reality for my parents. And so that's how they taught me, and that just became a common thread. But as I went through my medical education, helping me to challenge that and to overcome, it was very important to have representation and to have a guide, a mentor, someone who could see me, someone who could help me to overcome some of these assumptions that I had and that was something that really helped me to evolve with my professional identity over time and caused me to really be able to see the world through a different lens. So I just wanted to highlight that story as something that my mother taught me. It may not fit directly into how we're looking at the medical component of it, but it definitely informs how I show up in educational settings.
1: Mm, how interesting. And so I guess that's really important, isn't it? Because this was just something you got used to, your way of seeing the world and maybe didn't when you were a child realize there was other ways of seeing the world. And in fact, it was incredibly well-attentioned. Your, your parents were trying to, as you said, uh, prepare you for the world. And yet to, as you got older, you were starting to question those and think, hang on my path through the world isn't necessarily bounded by those assumptions. And, in fact, maybe I need to question them. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. How interesting.
0: I'm just wondering, um, you talked about your, your mom's influence on you, and I'm wondering what sorts of assumptions might you be kind of conveying to
2: your five kids I think that's a great question. (laughs) I marvel at it as well. Um, That's a great, great question. And I've been thinking about this because I'm raising my children in a very different time than my mother raised me. And it's a very different experience. My mother grew up in segregation. I, I didn't. So it's very different. And I feel that I've helped them in a very kind of hidden way, you know, so the gestures may not be direct in terms of what I say to them, but how I'm helping them to form their character, their integrity so that they have the confidence to be able to combat some of these assumptions when they're faced with them. So it may be in how I affirm them or how I treat them, um, how I esteem them and value them so that those things aren't wavering, but they're anchors for them so that when the world is telling them otherwise, they'll be able to say, wait a minute, this may not be true and at least have some consciousness of mind to say, I may need to look at this a little further.
1: Mm. And that's probably something I would say that uh, also serves you well in your work um, with your uh, behavioral health program with the uh, school-based work.
2: Yeah. I agree. It definitely is identity is so important, mm-hmm. you know, to children in yeah. how they navigate the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sidebar here, listeners. I always thought this was a bit of a risk when I had two psychiatrists on the show that they would start interviewing each other and <laughs> getting into things, but I'll try and keep uh, some control here. All right. Well, thank you for that story, Shalice. I think that sets uh, and sets us up nicely for getting on this fundamental conceptual level of understanding what they mean. Uh, all right. Well, Liz, tell us, uh, do you have a story that might illustrate the idea about assumptions?
0: Sure. Um... My story is also has to do with my kids who helped me uh, sort of examine my assumptions, you know, from the time they could talk because they see things through beginner's eyes, of course. And I remember when my daughter, Eva, who's now a medical student, came home from kindergarten one day and she told me a story that she heard in class that day. And the story was about a little boy whose job it was to sit on the side of a mountain And watch the sheep. And that boy was lonely and he was bored. And one day he pretended like there was a wolf and cried wolf. And all the townspeople came and they got really mad when they found out there wasn't a wolf. And you know how kids tell stories. She went through that cycle about seven times uh, until the little boy cried wolf and nobody came. And the wolf, uh, there was a real wolf that time ate all the sheep and ate the little boy too. And then she just stops. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a pretty violent story uh, to be told in our touchy-feely kindergarten. But I waited and I finally said, Eva, you know, that's a really upsetting story. Uh, But was there any lesson to that story? And she stopped for a moment and then she said, yes. The lesson is no matter how many times your kids trick you, you should still believe them. And I, I laughed my head off. Uh, there was also a little part of me that thought, wow, she got the answer wrong. Um, but then I started thinking about Eva's answer and it was really both moral and wise. And it was about unconditional love. I mean, nothing a kid does is, you know, warrants being torn apart by a wolf. Right. And then I started thinking like, what was that little boy doing on the side of a mountain by himself anyway? And why wasn't he in school? And what about child labor laws? And, Couldn't this town figure out how to solve this problem? And that brought me to a new place. I just started, you know, teaching in Harvard Macy, and I started thinking about Aesop's fables and and how we learn, you know. Of course we want kids to learn that they shouldn't lie, uh, but this was a fear-based method. It was a method that leads to one right answer – It also uses a story, which can be a very powerful uh, way for people to learn. Um, And I began to think about uh, these well-worn paths that we travel down, you know, automatically and um, uh, what's familiar, and maybe uh, there's a different way. Uh, Maybe there's a different path, a different means of transportation, or even a different destination. Excellent. I never had such a deconstruction oh. <laughs> Peter and the Wolf. But uh, and I,
1: I can only imagine how that has played out in your daughter's medical school now. Whether she's still telling the story, I'm not sure.
0: She's embarrassed she was very embarrassed when she was a little girl about this story and she'll probably listen to this podcast and wanna throttle me, but
1: again. All right. So uh, now we had had a bit of a discussion before we started here about what do we mean about assumptions. And uh, you read a very short little definition here, Liz, something we take to be true without proof. Uh, and then you've also got this idea that uh, obviously, we have some assumptions that we can see and that we can articulate quite easily. But we also have, and both of your stories illustrate this, that we also have some implicit assumptions that maybe we don't even realize uh, because we haven't had the mirror up to reflect on them or people haven't asked us to question them or we don't even realize that others might have different assumptions. All right. Well, I guess, Liz, can I sharpen this down then uh, and start thinking about what does this mean for teaching and learning, where it sounds like we're probably all bringing all kinds of assumptions into this arena.
0: Absolutely. And one thing to point out is that only a small fraction of our assumptions are explicit, where we can say, this is what I believe, this is what I want to drive my behavior, this is what I might want to consider a principle. Um, And the vast majority of assumptions are kind of under our radar. We're not aware of them. And psychologists would say over, you know, 80% um, are implicit uh, and drive us. uh, Nevertheless, even though we're not aware of them, they still drive us. And and we really want to be in the the driver's seat. Um, And that's why we spend so much time at the beginning of the educator program trying to find ways to bring our implicit assumptions up to the surface and why does it matter well perhaps first and foremost um, it's because we want to be principle driven rather than format driven a lot of times we default to educational formats that we're familiar with maybe because that's how we were taught um, and when we we really want to be much more intentional in our educational design I was at a conference planning meeting uh, just a few days ago with a group of colleagues and very quickly we got into the weeds and began talking about having a panel discussion. And we were talking, should we have three or four panelists and how long should they speak and how much time for discussion? And somebody else brought up which plenary speaker we should have. And I was right there in the weeds with everyone else. And suddenly I realized we hadn't even talked about our goals and objectives and what we hoped people would accomplish uh, and what our design principles would be. And so we did take that giant step back. And we ended up designing a much more innovative I think it will be conference uh, than we would have with these sort of modular formats. But, you know, we still ended up having a panel. doesn't mean you throw out all the formats that you're familiar with, but it means that you come, come to them uh, in a much more sort of thoughtful way.
1: Mm. And as you say, it's about principles and, and clearly we are the, our assumptions are the product of our prior experience in so many ways. And so if, all that you've done as a learner is sit in a classroom with someone talking at you, then your assumption is that that is education. So you will bring that to your teaching practice. And I think what you're saying is that's a format sitting in a classroom listening. Uh, And equally, you see it possibly even more when people get excited about new formats. They go, oh, fantastic, in my case. Simulation, we should do that without thinking about uh, why they've warmed to it, what that might mean in terms of aligning their objectives with a format and what it means about what they bring to their uh, teaching perspectives, as Dan Pratt would say. I think that's another way of, you know, visiting some of this topic. Uh, all right, well, before we... Uh, go on a little bit further to sort of talk a little bit about um, what this means. Shalise, can I get you to jump in here? Uh, This is both easy and hard to get our head around, isn't it? Uh, Were you surprised when this was one of the first things that you did at Harvard Macy? How did it land on you?
2: I was surprised. And it takes a lot of reflection and intentionality because sometimes it can seem so easy. But then when you start to delve into it, you just really see the depth. And then just looking reflectively in my life and just seeing areas of how they developed. And even historical content that shaped my assumptions, that to me was eye opening and how I'm not able to separate my experiences from what I'm bringing into a classroom setting. So it was very intriguing and needful. So thank you, Liz. I really appreciated that session.
1: <laughs> yes, and, and of course, uh, you know, Liz Armstrong always comes up, doesn't it? But I remember her saying very clearly, this isn't a teacher training course. And I think by that, what she meant was this wasn't a place where you would just come and get another list of formats. There might be some uh, formats that get discussed, but most importantly, this was about thinking what were the principles on which you selected and worked with formats uh, as a teacher, as an educator. All right, Liz, well, tell us a little bit more. It sounds like you've used this principle in a few different uh, contexts, but you want to tell us a little bit more about maybe how it's played out um, in terms of the Harvard-Macy or how you encourage others to think about their
0: assumptions. Sure. Well, I think the first thing we do is we really try to encourage people to adopt a beginner's mind, to truly be curious, uh, to slow down, and to look at our own educational practices, but we also have tons of opportunities to um, explore within teaching and learning sessions, including the Harvard Macy, it's kind of a hall of mirrors where we're participants, participant observers in our own learning. Um, Liz's model uh, that she's used from the beginning of, of having us workshop projects through step back uh, consultation is uh, a prime example of of how we work with assumptions. Uh, as both of you know, uh, you know that involves sharing a, a project plan or idea, and then stepping back and letting your small group workshop your project. And you have to z- zip up, uh, and you are sitting there thinking, "They don't get it." You know, they, uh, you know, they're talking about something. Else. And you're stuck because you're stuck in your own head. You're stuck in your own assumptions. But if you really can listen, often a new way of thinking, a new way of doing things um, can, can kind of come through. So the uh, step back method is one way to get at assumptions. Observations, uh, I remember uh, when I was a scholar, we had the opportunity to um, sit in on uh, problem-based learning sessions. And we would get there early and sit, you know, maybe two scholars in one of these sessions sit at, you know, the perimeter of the room. And I remember sitting and waiting for the group to file in and the tutor to come in. And I had my notebook. And as soon as they started the teaching session, uh, I was busily collecting data because one of the things we try to do is really root our observations in as objective as possible collection of data and then later reflect on it. What were our reactions to the data? What does that tell us about our assumptions? But in the moment, you're really supposed to collect data. So students and teacher file in, I'm busily scribbling away. I've just mapped the space and diagrammed each student, and I came out with my observation. And then uh, in the debrief, the person who had been sitting next to me started talking about her observation, which was she started observing before the actual teaching session, I'm putting air quotes uh, there, um, started. She was watching the students file in, who had coffee, who immediately, you know, went. We didn't have laptops then, but maybe maybe cracked a book. What kind of chit-chat was happening uh, before the session started? And I that was such an epiphany for me, which is uh, that I was only thinking of teaching within certain uh, boundaries of, of of time. And it was as if somebody said, okay, start now. This is when the teaching session started. And it it actually got me interested in the informal and hidden curriculum because suddenly I realized that learning is happening in all the interstitial spaces around what we consider to be the formal curriculum.
1: Mm, Absolutely. And I can remember doing the same exercise. And I think what you're saying is the beginner's mind requires us to go back to what's actually happening here, not what am I assuming is happening here, like your assumption that the learning started when the teacher walked in, uh, your assumption that the learning would be teacher driven and uh, that the learning is what's written explicitly uh, in the outline of this particular session. Uh, the other thing I remember doing in that session is a conversational diagram, which I've recently been revisiting in the context of simulation debriefing. And this is where you draw a little diagram where with lines going from each person in a group, and you can see who talks the most and who talks less. And you can, and then you realize you look at, oh, that's really good. Lots of people spoke. And you realize, in fact, you there's an assumption in there. The idea that people talking are people learning. And that may or may not be true. And I think that was very powerful for me. Don't just have a reaction uh, of like or dislike, but actually think about what that means about your assumptions about teaching and learning. Uh, Well, Shalise, I'm going to go back to you. Is that some of the epiphanies that you had at Harvard Macy or, or different ones?
2: No, I did, even around engagement, you know, because it's virtual. So we just finished that because of COVID and i just remember our afternoon sessions were competing with the time that my children were arriving home from school and so prior i probably would have turned my camera off you know maybe muted to greet them but i left my camera on i did mute (laughs) but i left it on you know because i had to really understand the needs of my children and that the perception of what i am doing at that time it's about me and my authentic self and who I know that I am, you know, during that that moment. So I would allow the children to come. They gave me hugs and kisses. And I even remember getting some personalized chat messages from some of the scholars who saw that interaction daily. And they were really appreciative of the authenticity of that moment. So it did challenge what it means to be engaged as a learner, um, because sometimes the perception is that you camera on, um, that we're kind of putting on hold some of those other things and other roles and responsibilities that make us who we are at that moment
1: Mm, yeah absolutely that's a nice example so then if we think about, well, what are these assumptions? Do we, the examples, I think uh, Liz and Charlize have helped us here, but a couple that you listed down there that we might consider. Uh, what is learning? Is it something that is, we're informed by uh, or transformed by? Uh, what is the difference between teaching and learning? And we know the cartoon that sometimes you've put up there, Liz, about the dog who gets taught the trick, but it doesn't mean that he's learned it, uh, and the difference between those two things. Uh, some of our assumptions about what the role of the teacher is Is it to support or is it to tell um, uh, sage on the stage or guide on the side? Uh, And again, Dan Pratt's work keeps on coming back to me. You know, our stance and our perspective on teaching is is very relevant here. And even our assumptions about what is the goal of educational institutions. (laughs) Is it really? These hidden curriculum comes up too, doesn't it? Is it really? to help transform these students into better healthcare professionals? Or uh, is it about much more than that? Uh, organizations have a way of wanting to perpetuate themselves. So have we hit upon some of the big ones that tend to come out, Liz?
0: Yeah, I, I, think, you, I think you did uh, get it, Vic. Um, I remember uh, a story. Uh, one of my residency program directors from my hospital came to me and she was really worried because new competencies had come out about Uh, systems improvement this was a number of years ago and she said i have no one to teach we have very few people very few faculty uh in our hospital that uh, do this kind of work and nobody's available to teach and i don't know what to do uh and what we ended up doing was exploring with her uh you know what her idea of a teacher was and it for her it was an expert um and uh you know they had they had the you know the information, and they were going to walk the students through uh, what they knew. And I asked her, you know, could a teacher be a facilitator? Or could the teacher even be a co-learner? And could that be exciting for everybody? And what would that model to learners about lifelong learning? And uh, it ended up being a really innovative curriculum, and of course, the faculty had tons of clinical experience, and uh, they they could communicate that to the students and bring that to the to the learning experience.
1: So, mm. And I can only imagine how much the faculty learned, not just about their teaching and learning assumptions, but also about systems based practice. So <laughs> it was probably very uh, rich all round. Shalise, uh, can we dive into the step back consultation here? Because I also recall that this is one. One of the really foundational experiences at Harvard Macy where just as Liz said, you're forced to relook at your project through the beginner's mind because your group who have never seen or heard of your project, who aren't an expert in the field, suddenly take it on and you get to having this excruciating experience of other people working through your project uh, as, and then you see some things that you can't see maybe because of your assumptions. Can you tell me a little bit about what that process was like for you and if there were some useful assumptions that you questioned?
2: I really appreciated that experience because it really helped me to be open without interruption. It helped me to slow down and just to be present, be the fly on the wall and just hearing the conversation. And I think what really helped me appreciate that experience was that in 2000, I studied abroad and I did a semester at C program. And so during that program, we traveled to so many different countries, we went to 10 different countries. And so I was culturally immersed in so many different experiences that when I came back home, it really infused into multiple aspects and areas of my life. And being in the step back program, um, well, consultation, my group was a very nice international group. My facilitator was from Brazil. One of the other scholars was from uh, Uganda. And just even hearing their perspective with some of the cultural nuances was really helpful. And it really brings a lot of value to what that project that you have can really be the potential that it can really be. So it was hard for me, because I am one that likes to talk and interject. But the value that comes out of it, and even what you learn, because that can be translated to other experiences when you're engaging with people or your patients of just being quiet and listening, and then not always being so quick to jump in, you know, with whatever you already have uh, in your thought process.
1: Mm, that's so true isn't it and it's it's funny because we often when we take a stance we feel like and maybe this is a cultural norm as well particularly in western societies which is to defend our stance and to have our opinion and uh, to promote it so there's even an assumption in that whereas and i'll put a link for those who haven't experienced the step back consultation process uh, in the notes so that you can watch some videos about what this is. But when we are forced to just stop and listen, uh, it turns out that maybe we can stop defending our stance uh, and in fact just quietly reflect on it and see if there are better ways of doing our educational project that we hadn't even thought of because we are working in boxes of constraints that were real or sometimes imagined. Uh, I imagine you've seen a lot of people in this process, Liz, go through the same with their projects.
0: Absolutely. And we try to teach this method of, for the rest of the group, kind of reflecting back what they might hear. But if they're going to ask a question, it's not, um, they're kind of listening to understand rather than listening to respond. So any questions they might ask um, are to help the presenter come to a deeper understanding of their own project um, rather than to make a point. A lot of us have that sort of launching pad where somebody's talking and we just want to wait for them to finish what they're saying so we can make our point.
1: Yeah. And there's a, a lot in that, isn't there? And uh, again, we I know these terms like humble inquiry, like thinking about the frames that underpin some of other behaviors and the
0: a lot of times if we're, if we're observing a teaching and learning session, we find ourselves having an emotional reaction. Surprise or even what are these people doing? Kind of Sometimes even anger. Uh, we don't like it. Uh, whenever you find yourself having an emotional reaction... It's probably a hint that there's an assumption underneath that you need to dig as, as you're saying, Vic. Another, uh, uh epiphany, moment <laughs> moment, epiphany, uh, for me was, um, back when I'm dating myself with all these stories, but back when smartphones were new and I was with a group of students, I think we were discussing a case. We were trying to put the person's symptoms together to make a diagnosis. And I look over and one of these students, had opened up his smartphone and was just scrolling through and tapping on it. And I, you know, I couldn't believe it. I thought how unprofessional I probably use the word rude and I didn't, this was in my head <laughs> and I didn't know exactly what to say in the moment. Um, uh, and then it was rounds were over and I thought about it a lot that whole night, um, you know what do I say? This is going to be a whole new thing with these millennials. They're going to be checking their email and texting their friends. And the next day, I came back and we, you know, we were talking about this case again. And I saw the student again was looking through his phone, and I was about to say something, and then he looked up with this bright expression, and he said, "I found it! I found it! You know, I think it's this diagnosis because this paper uh, concludes." X, Y, or Z, and I realized that he was actually using his phone to augment his learning. And boy, was that a that was a frame shift for me. And um, I started thinking, you know, what what were my assumptions? And probably it wasn't just an assumption that he was doing his email. It was probably an assumption about millennials. Uh, oh, they don't have the same work ethic. They're not as professional, uh, et cetera. Uh, and we still actually made some ground rules about the phones. It wasn't that, um, you know, it was, it was all fine. I actually acknowledged to the group that I'm a digital dinosaur and that, you know, I actually wasn't sure what he was doing on his phone, and they all laughed. And I said, you know, as a group, let's just decide when we can look at the phone. Sometimes it's better to try to use critical thinking and, and talk it through. But um, uh, if you want to look at your phone, just make sure the rest of the group you know knows what you're doing. And you know that reminded me of a framing that that Vic you introduced me to, which is um, Jenny Rudas WTF to WTF, right? Um, when we find ourselves saying to ourselves what the you know blank uh, WTF, we might want to convert that to what's the frame.
1: Yes. And I'll put a link to that uh, talk once again in the episode description because it's worth watching. And I think one of the things that Jenny does is help us understand that we need to get into this as a habit because it doesn't come naturally. We will jump into our emotional reactions as our first default, and it takes a little bit of cognitive bandwidth or a well-established habit to be able to jump back into the, hang on, Why are they doing this? What assumptions have I made here? Uh, Just like your student with the phone, the Eureka moment for him was also a Eureka moment for you. Uh, All right, so let's start to think about where we go with this lovely mindset we have now about the assumptions. And I will say, and so I'm going to ask you both about how do you think this is now impacting on your practice, whether that's as uh, clinicians, educators, um, or indeed in life in general? Happy to hear any of those stories. But I will say quite profoundly that this was probably my takeaway in 2005 when I first went to Harvard mace It was, oh, my goodness, you don't have to just... Like or dislike a format, you actually have to think about what that means about your assumptions about teaching and learning. And I think that's been very helpful for me and the other educators that I have worked with to revisit that. Just as you said in your conference planning there, Liz, um, every now and again, when you find yourself in the weeds, you go, Oh my goodness. It's because we haven't even thought about some of these fundamental principles. We've just started to copy a format. Um, and we haven't been, uh, maybe not even quite as deep as questioning assumptions, but just revisiting principles. Yeah. All right. Well, Shelise can I start with you? Where now? What what impact has this had? Yeah, that's all nice at Harvard Macy, but are, are you get? Is you getting into the habit of uh, questioning your assumptions about teaching and learning?
2: I am trying to. <laughs> I think it is. It is challenging, uh, just to be very mindful about it. But I feel it's so necessary because one of the takeaways for me was just how much am I robbing myself of seeing a fuller picture, right? You know, we all have things that help us to put the puzzle together. And if I remain closed or like you said, trying to defend something, I'm literally robbing myself of seeing that fuller picture. So trying to be more intentional and taking moments to be reflective, aware. That's what I've been trying to work on in my clinical practice, in my day-to-day with family. And it's not easy, but it's so necessary. And even teaching these to... Uh, trainees and just perspective. So yes, the history is important, but it's also important, especially in psychiatry, where rapport is critical. You just really have to make sure that you are open because if people don't feel that connection, it could be the difference between compliance and noncompliance, right? And when we're working with uh, people who are literally at crucial junctures life and death junctures we really need to make sure that we are examining our assumptions so that we don't lose we don't lose that connection so that's what my goal is in how to translate it from the course to to my life
1: yeah, fantastic. And, you know, it's funny how commonly I feel, certainly personally, that uh, these educational epiphanies are often translatable into the clinical world. And I think it has helped me do a better job as a doctor by thinking about these things as an educator. And I wouldn't be surprised if other healthcare professionals have had that experience as well. All right, Liz. Well, in the, what is it? 19 years of doing this at Harvard Macy or possibly? longer. Uh, how has it transformed you? I mean, you know, it's one thing to have these scholars come to the program and go, good, i have helped them question their assumptions, but uh, some of it must rub off on you.
0: Yeah, I think we teach what we really need to learn. And I, um, I have a hard time slowing down. My brain is always going a mile a minute, not necessarily in, you know, a Perfectly linear and logical direction, but slowing down and noticing and listening. And I came from a family where people's way of showing that they were engaged was, you know, sometimes to cut each off each other off in mid sentence. So the opportunity to practice listening, and this is part of the reason why I got involved in uh, work in the art museum because, you know, what a um, just what a privilege to stand for even a minute with a group of people looking at a work of art, seeing what you notice, letting your eyes move across the canvas. And then when you start a conversation, you realize that the person next to you has kind of seen very different aspects of the painting than you have. And, you know, you're, and that's fascinating. And then you're, building a collective interpretation and and grounding it in evidence. Oh, you say that guy is angry. What do you see that makes you say that? And uh, it's the clench of his jaw or, you know, so um, that is both another um, kind of uh, way that I, you know, I explore assumptions and teach about assumptions, but it's also something that's incredibly restorative for me when you can get into that mindful place um with other people where nobody's really an expert um at the thing that you're doing
1: yeah wow how interesting a couple of things in what you said there i can only uh, reinforce this concept about the listening and the profound effect it can have. And uh, I find that is actually a, an assumption that many people have about podcasting, is that it's about talking, but actually it's about listening. Uh, but I also love this quote, we teach what we need to learn. And uh, I might go and have a little bit of a think about that in my own educational practice as well.
0: One uh, observation that... Um, that's really helped me over the years, which is whenever you're starting something new, you're implementing a new curriculum with learners. um, They can either end up feeling like pioneers or they can end up feeling like Guinea pigs. And so how we present uh, what, what we're doing, our enthusiasm, um, our willingness to join with our learners, um, on this new adventure, I think can make all the difference. We want them to feel like pioneers. Yes, exactly. Absolutely.
2: Can I add one thing? Of course, Phyllis. (laughs) So I was thinking about this too, in terms of the level of humility that it takes to examine your assumptions and vulnerability, right? And Mm -hmm. having that psychological safety to be able to do that. Um, Because oftentimes if these assumptions have been with you for quite some time, they're shaping who you are. And so when you start to dismantle them, it can mm-hmm. impact how you feel about yourself, right? So it's it's helpful to know that it, in Harvard Macy, you have a safe place to do that. And hopefully the connections that I, I've built, connections over time with my scholars and colleagues that you can continue to do that work and have a safe place to go back to to process that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point, isn't it? Is that we have an emotional reaction when we are confronted with our assumptions. And we've seen that in much broader sense in society uh, and thinking about how we can help people through that process. Uh, because there is sometimes a little sense of grief. What? I always stand out the front of the lecture and they love me. Uh, and that, and, you know, just questioning if that is the best way of teaching um, can actually be a grieving process for some people as they have to let go of some assumptions. Yeah.
0: You know, I just want to make the point that there are personal assumptions, but then there are also cultural and institutional assumptions. And those are, can be really hidden. That's why you call it the hidden curriculum, really at the level of language that we use and, and how we allocate resources. And um, it's really important to, you know, dig under the surface to uncover those cultural assumptions. Because if we're going to be successful planting those seeds, those curricular seeds into the soil, um, and we want them to grow, there has to be a a match there between um, our own principles and our own kind of curricular innovations and um, uh, where we're trying to embed them.
1: Yeah, and that's probably another whole podcast really, isn't it? Because really we've spoken here about an individual process of uh, looking at our assumptions. But I think what you're also saying is there's an appropriate space and necessary space for institutions to examine their assumptions, societies to examine their assumptions. And uh, that probably starts with some individual habits, but there's uh, obviously other processes as well that that, uh, will support that. Well, Shalise and Liz, this has just been fantastic. It's just been so lovely. And for Harvard Macy listeners, I think you've had a treat here, thinking about assumptions about teaching and learning in particular and some of the things that we might have to revisit with a beginner's mind uh, as educators when we come to think about how to design, deliver, evaluate, assess uh, within our educational practices. And uh, so very useful, and I hope everyone gets a chance to think on what their own practice of teaching and learning might have embedded as assumptions, by all means, find some good ones in there that seem to serve you well and stick with them, Uh, but also uh, find some ones that maybe there could still be some improvement uh, for the sake of our learners, our faculty, and our uh, co-faculty. So thank you both for your time.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you, Vic. Shalice, it was wonderful getting to know you. Oh, I've so enjoyed getting to know you too, Liz. Thank you so much, and thank you, Vic. So nice to to be able to do this with you guys.
0: Excellent. Thank you both.